Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Padilla. We are finally at the end of our summer sermon series. Next week, we will begin with a brand new interview as we kick off a new season. As we were faced with the difficult task of choosing sermons to play for you this summer, there were more sermons than we could choose. So let me encourage you to head over to our YouTube channel, Beeson Divinity, to listen to other sermons from this past academic year. You can also find there other excellent sermons that have been preached at Beeson over the years. Next month, we will begin a new chapel series at Beeson with the fall semester called The Life of David. So our preachers this coming fall have all been assigned a text on The Life of David to preach in chapel. Our weekly Tuesday chapel services are open to the public, and we would love for you to join us. You can find the full schedule at beastandivinity.com slash worship. If you're unable to come in person, you can watch and listen each week at beastandivinity.com slash live. All right, our last episode in this series is actually not a sermon, but a lecture given this past academic year. Even though it's not a sermon, it was just too good not to share with you. The lecture is called Preaching Crucifixion and was given by Dr. Michael Knowles for our annual William E. Conger Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching. His lectures were theologically and pastorally rich, and some of my favorite lectures that I've heard at Beeson recently. So whether you're a pastor, preacher, or layperson, I truly believe you're going to benefit from today's episode. Dr. Michael Knowles is Professor of Preaching and the George F. Holbert Chair of Preaching at McMaster Divinity College. He is ordained in the Anglican Church of Canada and was a guest on the show on March 1st. So let's go now and hear from Dr. Michael Knowles give a lecture on preaching crucifixion. So first, let me offer particular thanks to the academic dean who's not able to be with us. What could be more important, but anyway, uh, Doug Sweeney, as well as to Mike Pascarello uh, for the honor of this invitation. Uh, most of us, as you know, I have this in my notes. I wasn't, didn't know this. We, we minister in varying degrees of faithfulness, in varying degrees of obscurity. These lectures are the culmination of some 45 years of Christian discipleship, nearly 40 years of ordained ministry, and 30 years, give or take, in academia. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to set before the church some of what I believe the Lord has taught me. Um, if some of what you've heard sounds familiar, um, keep in mind this is Groundhog Day, um, so that may explain it. So, in the crucifixion of ministry, surrendering our, surrendering our ambitions to the service of Christ, pastoral theologian Andrew Purvis explains that there are often two seasons of crucifixion in the life of a pastor. The first season of crucifixion typically coincides with the first year or two of ministry. Statistically, he says, about a third of new pastors quit within a year or two of graduation from seminary. After all of those years of study and sacrifice and preparation, they discover that the pastorate is not for them. This, he writes, is a major death, full of deep disenchantment and at times embittered recrimination. It is a personal, familial, fiscal, and ecclesiastical disaster. But it's not the end of the world. Before too long, they, they pick up the pieces and they move on in the direction of a more suitable career. The second crucifixion, he writes, is more subtle and less dramatic. It moves in on us more slowly and insidiously than the rapid, stunning disillusionment of the first crucifixion. It is more profound and in its way more deadly. Somewhere along the way, 10, 15, 20 years out, who knows when or what circumstances precipitate the process, a terrible awareness begins to dawn. I can't do this. Some quit, I think, because of workload. 
Others because they and their families get frankly tired of living in the fishbowl. And others again because of the unrealistic expectations of congregations who are looking for salvation in all the wrong places. But my guess is that those, in fact, tend to be the primary causes of the first crucifixion, whereas the second crucifixion is deeper and more deadly. 10, 15, 20 years into your ministry, this is a forecast. So subtly that you didn't see it coming, you begin to lose heart. You run out of energy and ideas. You no longer care the way you once did. The needs and the sorrows of the congregation are simply too great for you to bear. Things that used to come easy no longer work the way they once did. Inwardly, you grind to a halt even though outwardly you're still going through all the right motions. It's not that you lose faith or that you lose sight of your goal. That would be understandable. The worst part of it is that in some sense, deep down, you feel that you've fallen out of favor with your Savior. He's there, but he's just not blessing the work the way he once did. You find yourself wondering, what went wrong? According to Andrew Purvis, all of this is normal. It's not punishment for unfaithfulness or a sign that you've fallen short. After all, since when did success in ministry depend upon the faithfulness of the minister? Purvis would say that the Lord's gradual and intentional withdrawal the withdrawal of easy blessing, the diminishment of tangible consolations, being led into the wilderness where progress is uncertain and signposts difficult to discern. All this is, in fact, the reward of faithfulness. It's a sign that the Lord is drawing us deeper, causing us to hunger for his presence, insisting that we not be satisfied with yesterday's blessing. The Lord responds to those who truly love and serve him to be satisfied with nothing less than himself. Not more publications if you're an academic. Not a larger church and a bigger budget if you're a pastor. Even more amazing sermons if you're a preacher. He withdraws the obvious. And he crucifies our ambitions so that we might learn to love him the way he loves us all in. And the only way that that will happen is for us to realize ever more deeply not how much Jesus needs us, but how much we need him. <laughs> Come on, we would all love to be successful preachers. We all want our congregations to grow, and would a little recognition be too much to ask? Nothing wrong with that. But the problem lies with how we want to get there. We expect that the further we go, the easier ministry will become. That we will learn from our mistakes, we'll gain new skills, and we'll get better at what we do. Every day, in every way, things will get better and better. I thought I'd throw in a Southern cultural illusion. Again, those are reasonable goals. But the problem is that we have an incurable tendency to set ourselves up as indispensable even for the work of Christ the preaching of the gospel, the building up of his church. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. John Calvin. What Andrew Purvis is telling us is that the further we proceed, the more experience we gain, the more difficult ministry is likely to become. In the precise and specific sense that we will realize ever more deeply in ministry as in discipleship, that we need Christ far more than he needs us. He wants us to be satisfied with nothing other, nothing less than himself, because he alone is the source of life. So 10, 15, 20 years into ministry, so subtly that you, you, you wonder how you got there. All that other stuff has to go. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. Okay, that's a key Reformation principle. Christ, the only mediator, the only reconciler of God and humanity. But we preachers still want to be mini-mediators 
between God and the saints. This is the mini-me of ministry. Ironic, don't you think? Christ must disabuse us of our perpetual self-importance. If we are truly to serve him, we must allow him to serve us. Only then can he serve others through us. Well, it's not difficult to imagine everyone's reason for being here this morning. You want to be a preacher or a better preacher? Preaching's difficult. It's difficult to keep a congregation happy. It's especially difficult competing with all those other churches that have bigger budgets, a larger following on YouTube. Let's be honest. Ministry typically involves a whole lot more competition than collegiality. You might have noticed. And we might as well admit that preaching a crucified Messiah is no way to win a, a popularity contest. But try if you wish. Now I'm conscious of my mandate and of the specific purpose of the Conger Lectureship. As you may be aware, the William E. Conger Biblical Preaching Lectures, quote, are presented in the fervent prayer and hope that they shall enlighten the preacher's skill but above all, stir the preacher's soul, so God himself may shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ." End quote. So if our souls are to be stirred for the task of preaching, we must gaze once more, more intently than before, into the face of Christ both crucified and risen, in order to see there, and there only, the paradoxical glory of God that promises to transform us. Paul has a lot to say about gazing into the face of Christ in his letters to ancient Corinth. He also has a lot to say about crucifixion, some of which may surprise us. Now, I know my tribe. Evangelicals prefer to think that coming to the cross of Christ happens once, at conversion. You know, it's one and done. Dying to yourself is like an initiation rite. But once you're in, it's on to resurrection, new life, and victorious Christian living. I always want to say, how's that working for you? Except that our own experience, it's hard to say this, but our own experience is usually far more complex than that. And likewise, Paul's own account of crucifixion and resurrection is considerably more nuanced and complex. So here we go. He writes about crucifixion in four different ways. First, Galatians 2, 19 to 20. These are all familiar texts, no surprise to anybody. But let's put them together. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, of course, he has a dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul dies to his former way of living, living unto God, and he's now alive in Christ. This is a forensic perspective on the cross and crucifixion. Romans 4, Jesus our Lord was handed over to death for our trespasses, raised for our justification. I'm not pretending to teach you anything new. But being justified by faith in the Son of God is only the beginning. Romans 6, we've been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we, we might walk in newness of life. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. In other words, our participation in the death and resurrection of Christ is not only forensic, but also ethical. And then third, like it or not, we all have to die sometime. We're going to peg out. But we have the promise if we have already died with him, we will also live with him. Forensic, ethical, eschatological, each with a definitive beginning and a definitive end. Familiar, right? Ah, but there's one more. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians that the death and resurrection of Jesus apply not only to conversion and holiness and future glory, 
This is where preaching comes in. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, he writes, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He who rescued us from so deadly a peril will continue to rescue us. On him we have set our hope that he will rescue us again. The Lord has allowed Paul a near-death experience so that, Hina, purpose clause, he would learn to rely on God who raises the dead. And Paul fully expects the same thing to happen again and again and again. He will continue to rescue us, which is his source of hope, whatever the future brings. In all four ways, according to the apostle, God treats the disciples of Jesus just as he treated his son by rescuing us from sin, ungodliness, weakness, affliction, self-sufficiency, even death. Some of you, this is new, but how well do you remember your first encounter with the synoptic problem? We once had a student who said, what synoptic problem? That's a different issue. When you first realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell things a little differently, slightly different details. Well, in Mark 8 and Matthew 16, Jesus tells the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So far, so good. But as Luke tells it, Jesus inserts one more critical word. If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, if I had my choice, I'd go with Matthew and Mark, because that makes it sound like, you know, taking up your cross is one and done. I like that. But the apostle says it's not so simple. He who rescued us from so deadly a peril will continue to rescue us. On him we have set our hope that he will rescue us again. And again. In every circumstance of life. That includes Christian ministry. The ministry of preaching in particular. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's not just conversion. These are the ongoing conditions of discipleship. And if they're the conditions of discipleship, they are assuredly the conditions of Christian ministry. These are the conditions for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, both crucified and risen. We live and preach by faith. I wonder what you would think if I began by confessing what I did not know and could not do. If I came to say you and I said, well, you know, I'm not very eloquent. My words are nothing fancy. I'm not actually terribly clever. Uh, I'm basically unqualified for the task to which I've been called. You know, I'm sure you'd wonder why I had been invited to give these lectures. You know, whether the selection committee had made a really unfortunate mistake and how soon the coffee break was coming so you could slip away unnoticed. Yet that's basically what the Apostle Paul says when he writes to the church of ancient Corinth. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, you're already aware that Paul is not exactly popular in Corinth. Much like ourselves, the Corinthians are mostly interested in power and authority. They want strong leadership, eloquent preaching, intellectually responsible arguments, and pastors who can present themselves well in public as a way to win the world for Christ. They like a good show, they, and they want nothing so much as a little respect. Now, they don't have much time for a preacher who confesses, I came to you in weakness and in fear 
and in trembling, you did not come here this morning to see me quake. A pastor who begins his ministry by saying that because he has been crucified with Christ, he has nothing of himself to offer. I decided to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Well, you know, to a modern way of thinking and the wisdom of the world, this sounds just a, you know, it's a little pathological, don't you think? It's like emotional inadequacy. The man could do with a little bit of professional therapy and a, a healthy dose of you know, positive self-regard. He'd be much better off for it. Yet to abide in Christ is to abide theologically, not necessarily psychologically, but to abide theologically in crucifixion. To abide in Christ is to take up our cross daily in order to follow him. Inadequacy for the task of ministry and utter, utter dependence on the power of Christ are not, are not the qualities we look for in ourselves, in our leaders, in our ministers. They're the very things we do our very best to avoid. And yet, says the apostle, they are the secret to the life of faith and the life of ministry. My speech and my proclamation were not with words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Is that not an outright contradiction? He's just, he's just finished saying to them that he came to them in ignorance and weakness, in fear and trembling, and yet now he insists that his preaching is somehow powerful. Just as in the, he goes in the, in the very next verse, he goes on to say, among the mature, we speak wisdom, God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The life of faith, the work of ministry, at least as Paul understands them, clearly do not function the way anything else in our lives functions. They are a case apart. If you want to paint a picture, you paint with a paintbrush. If you want to write a computer program, you learn a programming language. If you plan to be a hairdresser, you learn to use scissors and electric clippers, hopefully not a chainsaw. When it comes to digging ditches, you'll take a, a backhoe over a teaspoon any day. And skydiving without a parachute and a good life insurance policy never ends well. Getting the job done, whatever the job may be, requires the right skills, the right training, the right tools and timing. Are you with me? So why is it that with all the right tools and all the right training and graduation from Beeson, preaching is so consistently unpredictable? Hebrews 12.4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Mm, so, good, so far, so good. If the word of God is a two-edged sword, then as preachers, we should be able to pick it up and set to work, piercing, dividing, judging thoughts and hearts. We should be able to use this mighty word the same way we would a paintbrush, a programming language, maybe even a chainsaw or a backhoe. Take up, says Paul in Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with that kind of a mighty weapon, should we not be able to corral it, wrangle it, explain it, apply it with the right strategy, the right skill set for postmodern times? Consistently powerful, life-changing sermons should result. But my guess is that your experience of preaching is no more consistently like that than is mine. Picture young David, the shepherd boy, weighed down to the point of immobility by the armor of Saul, trying to swing a sword that's far too large for him. He can barely get it off the ground. I wonder whether that is sometimes the portrait of the preacher, weighed down by seven surefire strategies for sermonic success, or 12 proven principles for powerful preaching, 
or whatever happens to be the latest trend in popular mechanics. I mean popular homiletics. <laughs> because experience shows that preaching is almost never as simple, as powerful, as predictable, as all of those textbooks say it should be. I have to tell you, that's the thing that the preaching manuals never tell you. They don't tell you that the book doesn't always work. It's far more mysterious, it's unquantifiable, it's, it's much more hit and miss. The sermon that you cobbled together in haste after an argument at the family barbecue turns out to be powerful beyond all expectation. People are still talking about it. And the lectures, I mean the sermon that you worked on for weeks, well, they turn out to be a bit of a dud, you know. What was that about? You thought it was wonderful, and they wondered what you were on about. It's not just hit and miss. Sometimes you can't even tell the difference between a hit and a miss. So you wonder what you're doing wrong, and you turn up at a preaching conference hoping that someone else from somewhere else can tell you what the mystery consists of. I have been crucified with Christ, says the apostle. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. I decided to know nothing, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. My speech, my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, whenever I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know about you, I find that very disturbing. Because if that's how the Lord works with the Apostle Paul, who are we to expect anything different? We have this treasure in clay jars. He says to the very congregants who have a dangerously low opinion of him already, we have this treasure, this glorious gospel in weak, fragile, easily damaged vessels, so that love purpose clauses so that it may be obvious that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. It sounds foolish as much to us as in ancient Corinth, but God's foolishness, says Paul, is wiser than human wisdom. God's weakness is mightier than all human strength. That, Paul would have us see, is the glory of God in the face of Christ i got to tell you, it ain't pretty, but it's beautiful. It's not easy, but it's the glory of a crucified and a risen Lord. And if weakness is the qualification, we qualify. That you have in spades. So let us answer this invitation. Let us gaze together upon the face of Christ and learn from the Lord himself how ministry is meant to operate in the enduring weakness of human flesh and the otherworldly power of the Spirit of God. We begin with a very familiar passage from the Gospel of John. I am the true vine, says Jesus to us, his disciples, and my father is the, vin, the vine grower. Abide in me as I abide in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. It's a familiar passage, but straightforward as it sounds, it leaves some questions in need of clarification. The obvious part 
is that intimacy precedes utility. In the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, intimacy is the precondition for usefulness. Jesus commands us first and foremost to abide, to remain, to rest in him. Preaching that is not bathed in prayer and rooted in devotion is likely to be little more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You might have heard it a few times. You might have preached it once or twice. So we need to know what abiding or remaining in Christ looks like in practice. And for that we look, oddly enough, to Christ himself. Now familiar as the image of the vine and the branches is to us, what's less often recognizes, recognizes that Jesus, is, whew, Jesus explains the dynamics of our reliance on him by analogy to his own reliance on the Father. Uh, throughout the John's Gospel, Jesus' own relationship with the Father forms the model for the disciples' relationship with Jesus. Just as the, his relationship with God provides the basis for his ministry, so our relationship with Jesus provides the basis for our ministry, including, above all, the ministry of public proclamation. So when Jesus tells his disciples, abide in me as I abide in you, apart from me, you, you can't do a thing, he doesn't just tell them. He actually shows them how that works in practice. It's, I find it striking, particularly in a gospel with such a high Christology, how often Jesus confesses his own complete inability to accomplish the works of God. John 5.30, look it up. I can do nothing on my own. Then he repeats himself a few verses later. The son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Philip says, show us the father and we will be satisfied. <clears throat> Has it ever struck you what a boneheaded thing that was to say? Anyway, but this is how Jesus answers him. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I speak not on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. A few verses further on again. I do exactly what the Father has commanded me so that the world might know that I love the Father. Again, Jesus confesses complete inability apart from the Father. His whole ministry consists of beholding, understanding, copying, participating in something initiated and sustained by the saving will of the Father. He's the Son of God. Yet his ministry is predicated not on ability, but on willing inability and loving dependence upon the will and agency of another. And then Jesus turns to us and says, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. For Jesus, as much as for us, intimacy precedes utility. His ministry is simply the outflow of the relationship that precedes it. So he explains that he yields, he relies, he depends, he follows so that, purpose clause, so that the world may know that I love the Father. For the Father loves the Son, John 5.20, and shows him all that he himself is doing. Or as we read in John 3.35, the Father 
loves the Son and has placed all things in his hands. So let's pause for a moment to gaze upon the face and the ways of Christ. Let's see if we can understand this passage, this statement, the Father loves the Son and has placed all things in his hands. When we entrust a task to someone else, we usually do so not because of who we are, but because of who they are, because they're trustworthy, or they're competent, or maybe they owe us a favor. It's a matter of quid pro quo. So if we had written this ver verse, we would, have we would have said, because the Son loves the Father, the Father has placed all things in his hands. We would have said that the Father should entrust all things to the Son because the Son can handle them. He deserves them. He can be trusted with them because he's earned it by demonstrating his devotion and his competence. But the Father places all things in the hands of the Son because the Father loves the Son, not because the Son loves the Father, even if that's the case. The Father chooses to rely on the Son even when reliance is unnecessary. It's an expression of the Father's love and favor, not of dependence or necessity. The Father loves the Son and has placed all things in his hands. Then Jesus says to his disciples and he says to us, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. Remain in my love. The same way that the Father loves and trusts him is the way that he loves and trusts us, not because of who we are. God help us if that's the case, but because of who he is. We are deeply conscious of our responsibility as teachers and preachers of the gospel, present and future. Let not many of you become teachers, says the Apostle James, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That prospect weighs heavily on our shoulders, and I want to tell you, the older you get, the more final judgment becomes an imminent prospect. Most of the time we are as conscious of our liabilities for ministry as we are of our abilities. And we truly wonder how the two halves of the equation will balance out in practice. But according to Jesus, our lives and especially the ministries entrusted to us are not expressions either of our personal worth or of our unworthiness. If Jesus loves us the same way that the Father loves him, we, they are, in the first instance, expressions of Christ's love for us, not our love for him. It's not that our trustworthiness inspires Christ to trust us, but the opposite. It is Christ's trust in me that inspires me to become trustworthy. I want to love him the way he loves me. And I'm astonished that he would trust me. He makes me trustworthy by calling me to himself. This is the bad news that turns out to be astonishingly good news after all. Christ doesn't love us because we're inherently lovable. I have news, you're not. Just the opposite. Neither does, he, neither does he commission us to preach on account of our education, our eloquence, our excellence, our ability to command the attention of others, our obedience. What qualifies us to preach is the excellence of the one whom we preach, not the excellence of the one who preaches. Sometimes we forget that. We forget that we have this treasure in weak, fallible, sinful, fragile, 
wounded vessels. We would dearly love to leave crucifixion in the past. In 1894, at the age of 62, Hudson Taylor, the pioneer English missionary to 19th century China, wrote this. God chose me because I was weak enough. God does not do his great works by large committees. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough, and then he uses them. One year earlier, in 1893, an astonishingly courageous Englishwoman by the name of Lilius Trotter, who had given up a promising career as an artist to preach the gospel in Algeria, wrote this in her diary. Oh, God has been good to us through these months. On July 12th, he gave me this promise. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass. And he has made it true, hallelujah, for I was feeling moan in body and spirit. Now he has begun to show me how all of this must be brought down into the dust of death before living out the life of Jesus can be anything more than an intermittent thing. I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Beatitudes. Arriving at the quiet place, Jesus sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more. More of God and his rule. You're blessed when, you feel when you've lost what's most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink for the best meal you'll ever have. Blessed are the poor and the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're blessed when we mourn and grieve, when we're meek and weak. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because we have none of our own. And the evidence for that is overwhelming. Blessed are the merciful and the simple, the peacemakers and the crucified. Blessed are the crucified. You know, the world doesn't need our eloquence and our excellence. There'll always be somebody better and certainly better looking on YouTube. The world doesn't need us to get things done. If the congregation needs to get stuff done, there's always more congregants than even the largest pastoral staff. Jesus doesn't turn to us. He doesn't call us into ministry, doesn't work through us because we have something to offer him. But because of what he offers us, he calls us, he loves us, he equips us to preach, not by giving us gifts. He gives us himself, all in. How did we ever imagine that salvation on the one hand and ministry on the other could somehow work by different sets of rules? Salvation. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. We get that. Ministry, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not ourselves, but Christ as Lord. Paul, not Paul, but the grace and mercy of God. Paul, whose history as a persecutor of the church weighs like a millstone round his neck. We have this ministry by the mercy of God, he says. Imagine that. You have your ministry by, as an expression of his mercy. Have you thought of that? When we pause to consider for even a moment the vastness of our inadequacy beside the immeasurable sufficiency of Christ, we know that's true of us. We have this glorious treasure, the good news of Jesus Christ. Not because we are intermediaries, not because we're able to diminish, to, to, to distribute, to demonstrate divine mercy, but because we've received what we did and did not and could not ever deserve. As the Father has loved me, says Jesus, so have I loved you. Remain in my love. Those who remain in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, 
you can do nothing. Now, I realize that any intelligent person will balk at what I'm saying. It goes against all our instincts, well, at least our instincts of self-preservation. Sometimes my students complain in their course evaluations, and, oh, they hurt, but anyway, you know, about the negative tone of cruciform theology. They had hoped, I suspect, something for something more cheerful, more energetic, more uplifting. You probably know the story, possibly apocryphal, about Teresa of Avila, who complained to God about her many trials. The Lord said to her, Teresa, that is how I treat my friends. She shot back, no wonder you have so few. <laughs> and do you not know, sisters, she writes to her, to her fellow nuns, that the life of a good religious who wishes to be among the closest friends of God is one long martyrdom. Actually, she goes on to say that at least decapitation would be easier, it'd be over quicker. Not lacking a sense of humor, that one. So let us gaze once more into the face of Jesus as we, remem as we, rem as we join the remaining disciples in the upper room in the days following his unjust execution. At this point, one of their number has committed suicide. The disciple who thought himself closest to Jesus has denied knowing him, not once, but three times in a row. And the rest have simply faded away in order to avoid arrest. That's why the door is barred and shut. Yet Jesus still shows up. Not only does he meet them at their lowest, bless them, breathe the Holy Spirit on them, grant them authority to forgive sins, Maybe they should start with one another. In addition to all that, he commissions them at this, the most implausible of all moments. As the Father has sent me, he says, so I send you. The very apostles who have failed him, fallen asleep when he needed them, denied him, abandoned him, disbelieved in him, he commissions and sends in his name, just as the Father has sent me, so I send you. We already know from John that the Father sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. We already know that the Father sent the Son into the world not to conquer the world by coercion and force, to force it into believing. He sent the Son into the world to be crucified by it, to yield so fully to the Father that the Father alone remained the, the sole source of his life and strength and ministry. As the Father has sent me, he says, so I send you. I leave you to draw your own conclusions. But this much I will say, and I've said it already, the fact that Christ commissions us, sends us, entrusts us with the care of his people is only ever proof of his sufficiency, not ours. His power his purpose, not ours, since only his grace is sufficient for the needs of the world and for the ministry of preaching. Christ treats us exactly as the Father has treated him. Apart from union with Christ, says Andrew Purvis, ministry is cast back on us to achieve. This, he writes, is a recipe for failure for we all fall short of the glory of God. The understanding and practice of pastoral work in this case is a burden too heavy to bear and follows a path that denies the gospel. We do not heal the sick, comfort the bereaved, accompany the lonely, forgive sins, raise up hope of eternal life, or bring two people to God on the strength of our piety and pastoral skill. To think that these tasks are ours to perform is not only hubris, but a recipe for exhaustion and depression in ministry. Well, you and I know. I mean, come on. We know. We're not bright enough, good enough, sufficiently sanctified to do the work of a holy God. This strange, the strange and paradoxical part is that our inadequacy, our inability, is in fact no disqualification. As much as when we were first converted, our need of Christ and his grace is what qualifies us 
as ministers of the word of God by which we point beyond ourselves to the one true living word of God, his love, his power, not ours, are the foundation of ministry. I will not venture to speak of anything, says the Apostle Paul. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. We come to uh, preaching conferences, even if you're students and you kind of have to be here. You know, we, we come hoping to be strengthened for ministry. We, we yearn for our souls to be stirred for the task of preaching. So, so here's my confession. I cannot stir your souls any more than you can stir mine. But I know the one who can. I know the one who simply waits for us to wait on him. Is it possible, do you think, that the real challenge of preaching is not that we are not powerful enough in the pulpit, not faithful enough, not wise enough, but that we are not weak enough, nor willing to be sufficiently foolish with the folly and abysmal weakness of a shamefully crucified Lord. Tomorrow we will say more about what it means. I guess that's the royal we. We will speak more about what it means to take up the word of God in a manner that is faithful and wise, even powerful and persuasive. But the first step is one of yielding, letting go, even dying, in the sure conviction that only those with empty hands are able to receive. Only the lowly can be lifted up, and as I said yesterday, only the truly dead require a real resurrection. As a spiritual director of my acquaintance has been known to say, unless you are least, little, last, lost, or dead, there's not much Jesus can do for you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.